Ready to connect with the investment community here in Cleveland? Want to learn about the people, events, projects, and firms that are making a difference? Want all that but feel like you don't have the time? This is the show for you. Welcome to Guardians of Finance. Brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland and hosted by Matt McLaughlin, CFA and Senior Vice President at Harbor Capital Advisors, Guardians of Finance will provide you with a chance to foster deeper connections and know what is getting the attention of Cleveland's investment community. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland and attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. And now, here's your host, Matt McLaughlin. Welcome to episode two of the Guardians of Finance podcast. In this episode, we speak with Corey Maneri, partner at Kirtland Capital Partners. We talk with Corey about her east side roots, her journey to the private equity side of the business, and her challenges as she ascended throughout her career. We also discuss her community involvement outside of work and an east side Italian eatery near and dear to the hearts of her family. Sit back, relax, and enjoy episode two of the Guardians of Finance podcast. Corey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm excited to be here. Oh, we're excited to have you. You know, maybe just to start off, introduce yourself to the Guardians of Finance podcast listeners and maybe talk a little bit about your early life, your upbringing, and kind of your pre-professional life would be a great place to start. Terrific. Happy to do that. So I am a lifelong Clevelander, born and raised on the East Side, proud graduate of Orange High School, and have spent most of my adult life living here in Northeast Ohio. Spent a couple of years in Columbus for school and my first job, and a couple of years in Michigan going to grad school. But, you know, those formative years was very lucky to go to an excellent public school system, which transitioned me into my business career that I'm in today. And did you start off wanting to go into finance? Was that your major in college or how did you get into the financial world? My path is probably a little bit different than most people. And in some ways, I feel very fortunate to have had it. So initially, when I was a young kid, I wanted to be a teacher. And Somewhere along the way, my parents said to me, that wasn't a great idea. They never really explained why. So maybe one day I'll ask them why that was their orientation. But when I was exiting high school, business just seemed to be a very well-rounded, sound degree to have for professional development. And I went into undergrad planning to be an international business major. Took a lot of foreign language classes throughout school and expected to work for some large multinational company in an international capacity. Had the good fortune of doing a study abroad when I was a junior going into my senior year. And after six weeks of living in France, decided that I had no desire (laughs) to live outside the United States. So God bless the USA, I guess. But at that point in time, knew that I wanted to continue with my business studies, but it just didn't make sense for it to be in an international capacity. So I was sort of in a pickle because I was close enough to graduation that it would be difficult to change my major. And I had a good, well-rounded business degree, but not as specific as a finance degree, as a marketing degree, some of the fields that Ohio State would have offered at that time. So when I graduated, I had job offers that were in operations, they were in marketing, they were in insurance-related fields. And ultimately, I chose to take a job with National City Bank down in Columbus, now PNC Bank. And that career path was really guided by the fact that the folks that were running that group were really smart people. 
And I felt that if I went to work with them, I would be able to learn a lot in my first job. And it proved to be absolutely the right career move for me, introduced me much more to finance at the time, and subsequently studied it in business school directly, finance and accounting. But interestingly, just to tie it into your organization, one of my first bosses and the person who interviewed me was a gentleman named Dana Kuhn, and he was a CFA. And he did not have a career path where that was an expectation. He just did it because he was intellectually curious and wanted to stand out in terms of his finance knowledge. And so while he worked at a commercial bank, that was his background as well. Right. What prompted you to go to business school? Was it seeing people you worked with that had went to business school? Was it learning more? What was the catalyst there to go up to that state up north and and go to business school? So when I started at National City Bank, I began doing loans for larger borrowers. And over time, it became apparent to me that a lot of these large borrowers were associated with private equity firms. Private equity firms were doing deal-related financing, and that was sort of the backbone of the activity we were supporting. And so I made the decision that I wanted to get into private equity, but knew that I didn't have the same schooling or traditional even career path to do that. I was working at a commercial bank at the time. Most people work at an investment bank. And so for me, business school was a way to bridge those gaps that I had and get more of a foundation in finance that was less on the job training and also just have a way to network into those job opportunities, which I did. Talk to us about your career now. You get out of business school. It sounds like you wanted to go into private equity. What was it like kind of getting out and, and trying to find a job? And where has your career taken you since then? Yeah. So the interesting thing, and I'll, I'll do a compare and contrast for anybody on the phone that is knowledgeable about investment banking, just as sort of an alternative. Investment banks have very predictable hiring patterns. And a lot of that is just generated based on the pace of people entering the industry, sometimes exiting the industry. And so they can reliably bring in an analyst class, associate class every year with a certain number of people. Private equity hiring, perhaps at the junior level, is a little bit more predictable, but certainly can be based on activity within the firm that yields job opportunities. And the reason I mention that is that it's a field where I think networking is even more important than other parts of finance where, you know, you're going to see jobs on a job board or they're going to be listed very publicly. You know, with private equity, you have to invest the time because you never know when a fund is going to trigger one more job. And so when I was in business school, you know, the summer between my first and second year, spent a lot of time networking with private equity firms in the greater Cleveland area predominantly. And through that networking, got to know Curtin Capital directly, joined as an intern, and then subsequently they were raising a new fund. And so the timing was very fortunate for me to join the firm right out of business school as they were raising some fresh capital and needed some additional resources to deploy that capital. So within my firm, I've been there for 18 years. It's not a common career path anymore to stay at a firm for that long of a you know consecutive period of time. But for me, the reason that I get energized for my job is because my job has changed so much during that time period. When I think back to my early days in my career, it was very front of the funnel focused. So looking at new businesses, evaluating their merits, 
going through the process of figuring out if we were going to be the ultimate acquirer. I've had windows in my career, particularly during the last downturn, where my time was spent on the portfolio and managing businesses that had experienced tough cycles and really helping those businesses to dig out of those challenges. And I actually get very jazzed by the exit process. It sort of is the culmination of all the work we've done over the years as a private equity firm. And we tend to nurture those processes at Kirtland pretty hands-on. So that's a piece of the business that I've gotten to learn over the years that I didn't have exposure to on the front end. So over time, the career and the day-to-day has changed a lot, despite having the same firm on the business card for sure. Talk to us a little about Kirtland Capital. What's your guys' niche in the market? What kind of company do you invest in? Tell us a little bit more about the company. Yeah, so one of the taglines we like to use when we're explaining what we do, we are business builders. And that sounds like a very simple foundation, but I think it's very relatable to people that interact with small businesses. So we are typically investing in businesses that have somewhere between oftentimes 10 and $30 million of revenue, sometimes upwards of $50 million of revenue, usually alongside a founder or family that owns the business. And what our conversations and activities relate to is how do we make this business bigger and better? And we're looking at providing people resources that the business doesn't necessarily have before we get involved. It can be around systems and really helping the business to manage the data that they're collecting better. It can be around infrastructure. In the last three businesses that we've invested in, we've had to move facilities within the first year of our ownership because the business was at that inflection point where they didn't have enough space or capacity to support future growth. And you know, at the end of the day, one of the pieces that we're often supporting is sales and marketing. If you think about a sole business owner, making a sales and marketing investment is a it's a risky proposition. They tend to be expensive investments and they tend to take a while to pay off. And so we find that that's a part of business that oftentimes business owners are reluctant to make that big investment. So we can come alongside of them and give them the courage to do that and and make those transformative investments in their company that will yield results in five, seven, 10 years down the road. What is the biggest misconception you hear about private equity from kind of public market folks like us with the designation? Not that no one in the private equity community has the CFA designation, but I feel like we operate in the public markets, generally speaking, and you're in the private markets. What's the biggest misconception that that you see that someone kind of sitting with a CFA charter that only knows public markets really well? What's the misconception there? Well, I would say that the two misconceptions out there are that the public data on private equity is often shaped by large firms. And I'm not going to name names because there's no need to, but there's firms that are of a size and scale that they would roll off the tongue of even folks that are far away from where they're headquartered in New York or wherever else. And so their style of private equity is associated with the industry. And what I would point to people that aren't just familiar with it is that There are hundreds of styles of private equity. There are firms that invest in very specific industries, very specific geographies, very specific size businesses, and how they're providing support to those businesses varies widely. You know, I think because the industry is private, people don't realize how much private equity is in their backyard, even here in Cleveland, Ohio. 
you drive by businesses every day that are private equity backed that you just take for granted our local businesses. But behind the scenes, they do have a partner similar to Kirtland that is helping them to grow. I think the other piece of it, and this really ties back to the early days of private equity, a lot of people assume private equity firms are there to dismantle businesses, cut costs, make them smaller, sort of destroy the legacy of an industry or of a company. And in fact, it's the opposite of how most private equity firms really think about business. When we're talking about companies, we're talking about growth, which is adding people, spending money, bringing resources. So for example, software, equipment, whatever it is, bringing these things to the table. And we can't realize a return on our investments if we don't make those businesses bigger and better. And so I think raising our hands and explaining to the community how we build businesses, I think is an important responsibility of ours because we really need to push away from some of those preconceived notions that maybe were part of the industry 30 years ago, but really don't make sense in a market where you're not going to make a return without just financial engineering. In our pre-discussions for recording this podcast, you disclose that you have kids and are very involved with them, which is fantastic. Talk to us a little bit about the challenges of being a working mom in a very intense investment industry and kind of maybe how you worked through those and how you've been really successful in both your career and in your personal life as a mother. Yeah. So, you know, in some ways, I would say I push forward with my family decisions a little bit naive, to be honest with you, in terms of picking the timing and other decisions that families often make. When I was graduating business school, I was engaged to be married. I was 28 years old, and I, w- I knew I wanted to have a family. And as I was doing some interviewing for after business school, it became very apparent to me that some of the employers that I was considering weren't going to be very supportive if I chose to have a family nearer term. And so nearer term for me might have been 30 years old, 31 years old. But in the finance world, that's <laughs> still nearer term in terms of somebody's career. And when I joined Kirtland and started my family, it was certainly complicated. They had not had a professional staff member that had gone on maternity leave. They had no traditional maternity leave policies. And this was just based on the fact that the professionals before me were all men. And so I had to forge a path forward for my family that made sense. And and I think there's certainly points of it that were awkward. I'm very grateful because my husband was an incredible supporter of what I did. He has a career that is more shift-oriented. So he had a job where he did not work five days a week in a row. It was more scattered. And he watched our children when they were very young. And so they have an incredible bond with dad You know, from the two to three days a week that he was home with them. And I'm also grateful for our extended family, both on my husband's side and on my side. A lot of people chipped in to make it feasible for me to take business trips when I had newborns, to help me with pickups when I had after-work events. And so what I think has changed in the world from those days 15 years ago is that there's a much broader understanding of those family responsibilities. And I I also think those responsibilities being shared more equally between men and women. And I think that that is helping to make women feel more comfortable in terms of expressing 
their challenges, their schedules, limitations. And my goal is to see more men advocating because they know what their spouse's day is like and they know what their day is like. I want to see dads saying, hey, I got to leave early because I have to do daycare pickup. And the more that household responsibilities are shared equally, I think it's going to take the pressure off of women from feeling like it's their burden and responsibility to manage both worlds alone. My kids are now... 13 and 15. So those responsibilities have certainly gotten easier. But, you know, it still creeps in from time to time where you feel like you're being pulled in two different directions. So it doesn't go away, even though they can handle themselves at home a little bit better than they could have before. It sounds like it's a busy household. So talk to us a little bit about your personal life passions. What do you like to do? Is it work and kids activities? Or is there more things that you really have are passionate about? Talk to us about your personal life a little bit. Happy to do so. So one of the things that when I reflect upon my career achievements, I had the very good fortune of attending an excellent public school for high school, in my opinion, a very excellent undergraduate program at Ohio State. My parents were not of significant financial means. And so I view those contributions to have been transformative to me. They put me on a level playing field with students whose parents were doctors and lawyers and and much more embedded in the business community. So public schools, I'm a big advocate of them. My children attend a local public school district. I help the school board out in my local community because I believe in really good public schools. I think it's one of the defining factors of the state of Ohio. It's not a place where you have to send your kids to private schools to have good outcomes. And there's other states like that, beautiful states that are around our country, but their communities haven't invested in their schools. And so I'm a big believer in that and support that. I'm a passionate national parks person. And so when we get away personally, we are trying to tick off a list of hitting all 62, 63 national parks in the country. So that is a big family initiative that we have. And then the last piece is I am very passionate about helping women in their career. So I lead a local networking group called the Women in Transactions Group, which is part of the Association for Corporate Growth. And that group gives me the opportunity to network with folks that are early in their career, people going through a transition, people struggling with some of the challenges that you and I just talked about. So that's been very fulfilling to be part of that and leading that group. And I've been part of the organization for a while. So from earlier in my career, when I was more in need of that networking infrastructure and support, it's been terrific. You talked earlier about you know you a lifelong Ohio resident went to school here in, in in the state, but you left for a little bit. What brought you back, and what's your strongest connection to Cleveland? Whether it be music, sports, family, like how do you think about your connection to Cleveland? So Cleveland is a place where everyone is willing to help, and I am consistently amazed by how willing people are to lend a hand here, and that's most often for me manifesting itself professionally, but I think it extends to every part of our life here in Northeast Ohio. So for me, it would have been tough to imagine raising my kids anywhere but here because of those attributes of what makes this a a great place to work and live. You can't beat the cost of living. You can't beat the cultural resources that are around the corner, very affordable, I say often California and Florida are beautiful places, 
But in Cleveland, you can live here, you can own a home, you can have a great quality of life and get on an airplane and fly to those places pretty regularly and still be right side up in terms of, you know, putting some money in the bank and, and having a great quality of life. So, you know, I certainly feel like I'm a cheerleader for Cleveland and Cleveland businesses. And I think it stems back to some of my roots. I mean, I have grandparents that were effectively first generation Americans and they came to this country with nothing. And Cleveland gave them a place to call home, a place for them to have jobs and raise their families. And that tradition stays in place today. And, you know, the thing that I worry the most about is, is that next generation going to view our region to have the same opportunities? And I worry about that legitimately with my kids. You know, they have big eyes for other places to live in this country. But when I see some of the work that the government's doing, for example, the Intel development down in Columbus, that gives me a lot of hope in terms of the innovation and new jobs that are coming to our region to really give young people opportunities that interest them and and reasons to stay. And you've stayed loyal to the east side. Any thoughts ever of moving to the west side or is that sacrilegious for you? Well, full disclosure, I spend some of my time over the summer in Vermilion, which is far west side. But a funny story for everyone that's participating in the podcast today. Again, lifelong east sider here. And when my kids were little, I shared with my mom that I was going to take the kids to the Bay Village Nature Center. And she was concerned for me that I was traveling so far and she wanted to know if I needed her to go with me, which for everybody on the phone knows, you know, it's basically a trip across the 480 bridge, but the Far East Siders don't make that journey all that often. So that's kind of coming from her own background. (laughs) That's funny. So we do some rapid fire questions. Um, So ready for those? Sure. Okay. Best new book you've read or best recent book you've read or new show recommendation? I'm enjoying the new Quantum Leap show because it's a throwback to a show I watched when I was young with my dad. So it's nostalgic, but also very fun. What streaming platform or network is that on? I think it's Peacock. Okay. Most memorable Cleveland sports moment or fine arts presentation or performance, whichever way you want to go with it. So I was at the Yankees game, the playoffs game where the Nat, they're not Nats, we would call them Canadian soldiers, were attacking the Yankees players. And I could not think of a more perfect way to welcome the Yankees to Cleveland than have our own resident bugs attack them. It was fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Most disappointing Cleveland sports moment. It would be the Cubs game when we lost the World Series after the rain delay. And I think what disappointed me the most is how many Cubs fans were in the stadium because that meant all the Cleveland people sold their tickets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it hurt. <laughs> What's interesting is that our first guest on the podcast also cited that. Oh! So we've got a consensus here with our first couple episodes. Last question or last rapid fire question. What is your favorite thing to do in Cleveland or favorite place to go, place to eat that most people don't know about? Hmm. Okay, so I'm going to do a plug. This is highly unknown. So this will be a good one to pick. It's a restaurant in the Willoughby Hills area called Mario Fazio's. And coincidentally, our office used to be located near there. And so that would be the only way I would have ever found out about that location. But it's owned by a wonderful local family. And I have had Wedding showers, baby showers, important birthday celebrations there. 
it has become a true fabric of my family. And I'm Italian, so I think I'm rather picky with Italian food. So they definitely have risen to the top of the list and proud to have included them in a lot of big milestones in our lives. Great. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Corey. We appreciate you coming on the podcast and hope it was enjoyable for you as well. Matt, thanks for having me and to all your members. Hopefully it was enjoyable. Thank you. You've been listening to Guardians of Finance, brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head on over to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland, attend an educational or social event, and find volunteer opportunities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Guardians of Finance.